Good morning. Moscow threatens Ukrainian shipping after pulling out of the Black Sea grain deal. What's next for the world's hungry? More legal trouble for Donald Trump. Israel's president spars with critics in Washington. Morocco's annexation of Western Sahara. Okinawa on the front lines again. And Oppenheimer, the big screen telling of the story behind the father of the atomic bomb. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durianzo in New York with an extended news report marking the 78th anniversary of the atomic bomb. And Iraq expelled the Swedish ambassador on Thursday, protesting a planned desecration of the Koran in Stockholm. Hundreds of Iraqis descended on the Swedish embassy in Baghdad, setting the building partially on fire. A copy of the Koran was shredded in June at Stockholm Central Mosque by an Iraqi resident of Sweden. Police have granted a permit for a second protest at the Iraqi embassy, and there have been threats the book, Sacred to Muslims, would be again desecrated. We'll have more news from the region after these headlines. More legal trouble for former President Donald Trump as Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel filed felony charges Tuesday against 16 Republicans who acted as fake electors for Trump in 2020. That was a lie. They weren't the duly elected and qualified electors, and each of defendants knew it. They carried out these actions with the hope and belief that the electoral votes of Michigan's 2020 election would be awarded to the candidate of their choosing instead of the candidate that Michigan voters actually chose. They are 16 charged with submitting false certificates confirming they were legitimate electors. Joe Biden won Michigan, but the Trump campaign challenged the vote count. All 16 face a maximum penalty of 14 years in prison for forgery and conspiracy to commit election forgery. In seven battleground states, including Michigan, supporters of Trump signed certificates stating he won their states, not Biden. The fake certificates were ignored, but the attempt has been subject to investigations, including by the House Committee that investigated the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Early on Tuesday, Trump announced he had received a letter from special counsel Jack Smith stating the former president is the target of a grand jury investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Legal experts say a target letter from federal prosecutors means an indictment is a sure thing. Trump would be the first former president ever indicted for a crime. Presiding over the case is a Trump appointee, U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon. Trump's lawyers have said they would try and have the trial postponed until after next year's election. And numerous prosecutors have been eyeing Trump. Earlier this year, he was indicted by the Manhattan DA on dozens of charges relating to his business dealings in New York. There's also a grand jury in Atlanta eyeing charges Trump attempted to get the Georgia Secretary of State to find him the votes he needed to win. Eventually, Trump lost Georgia. And an American soldier made an unauthorized crossing of the inter-Korean border into North Korea on Tuesday. The U.S. Army identified the soldier as Private Travis T. King, who joined up in 2021 and was facing disciplinary action. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said King crossed into North Korea on Tuesday willfully and without authorization. What we do know is that one of our service members who was on a tour... Uh, willfully and without authorization cross the military demarcation line. We believe that he is in the BRK custody. And so we're closely monitoring and investigating the situation and working to notify the soldiers next of kin uh, and engaging to address this incident. In terms of my concerns, I'm, I'm absolutely foremost concerned about the welfare of our troops. And so we will remain focused on this and again, uh, this this will develop in the next uh, 
several days and hours, and uh, we'll keep you posted. The crossing comes at a time of renewed tension on the Korean Peninsula with the arrival of a U.S. nuclear-armed ballistic missile submarine and the launch early on Wednesday morning of two ballistic missiles into the sea by North Korea. And in the European war, the governor of the province encompassing the city of Odessa in Ukraine reported Ukrainian air defense systems repelled a Russian air attack for the second consecutive night. The attacks come a day after Russia pulled out of a UN-backed deal for safe grain exports, raising concern in Africa and Asia, where food prices began rising almost immediately after Moscow said it would no longer honor the deal. Secretary of State Antony Blinken denounced the move. The result of Russia's action today, weaponizing food, using it as a tool, as a weapon in its war against Ukraine, uh, will be to make uh, food harder to come by in places that desperately need it and have prices rise. We're already seeing uh, the market uh, react to, to this as prices are, are, are going up. Um, the bottom line is it's unconscionable. Russia says it could return to the grain deal, but only if its demands are met for rules to be eased for its own exports of food and fertilizer. NATO says it's an attempt to use leverage over food supplies to force a weakening in financial sanctions. In New York City, federal judge Laura Taylor Swain wrote on Tuesday the administration of Mayor Eric Adams has failed to remediate dangerous conditions at the Rikers Island Jail. On Monday, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Damian Williams, said we can't wait any longer for the city to remedy the years-long crisis at Rikers, a complex of several jails holding about 6,000 people. Defense lawyers have been calling for Judge Swain to strip the city of control over the jail, but Mayor Adams was adamant on Tuesday. And I was very clear when I picked uh, Commissioner Molina and stated that we needed to move on a pathway to turn this system around that was dysfunctional at the highest level. Six people have died in city jails this year, three of them this month. A federally appointed monitor criticized Mayor Adams and Corrections Commissioner Louis Molina, saying the city has been hiding negligence and violence at the jail. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will meet with Turkish President Erdogan at the end of July. Former friends, the two countries have had strained relations since Ankara expelled Israel's ambassador following an Israeli raid on an aid ship in 2010 that killed 10 Turkish citizens. Meanwhile, Israeli President Isaac Herzog addressed a joint session of Congress on Wednesday, but not everyone was there. Michigan Democrat Rashida Tlaib and New York Representatives Jamal Bowman and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez skipped the speech, citing human rights violations by Israel against Palestinians. Representative Tlaib, the first Palestinian-American woman in Congress, gave an impassioned speech in the House chamber, accusing Israel of being an apartheid state similar to South Africa under white rule. This week, we're going to hear consistently that, the, you know, people touting about like, oh, this is bipartisan support here. Well, don't forget, this body, this Congress supported the South African apartheid regime, and it was bipartisan as well. But you don't have to take it from me to understand the racism of an apartheid government. Let's take a moment just to hear Israeli government's own politician in their own words. Direct quotes, not mine. How about former justice minister who said they should go as should the physical homes in which they raise the snakes. Otherwise, more little snakes will be raised there. How about another former defense minister said, quote, those who are against us, there's nothing to be done. We need to pick and axe them and cut off their heads. Another quote, there is no such thing as Palestinian people. How the is time has expired. At its core. Mr. Speaker, Israeli's own president 
Who's the gentlelady's time has expired. Does the gentleman for New York reserve or yield? Tlaib's indictment of Israel's right-wing government was countered by Herzog in his speech. He accused his opponents of anti-Semitism. I'm not oblivious to criticism among friends, including some expressed by respected members of this House. I respect criticism, especially from friends, although one does not always have to accept it. But criticism of Israel must not cross the line into negation of the state of Israel's right to exist. (laughs) Questioning the Jewish people's right to self-determination is not legitimate diplomacy, it is (laughs) anti-Semitism. Vilifying and attacking Jews, whether, whether in Israel, in the United States, or anywhere else in the world, is anti-Semitism. The executive director of the International Peace Group, Fellowship of Reconciliation, is Ariel Gold, a frequent contributor to this news program. She says the Israeli government's actions on the West Bank are fueling heated criticism of the Jewish state. This is the most extreme, the most far-right, the most racist. And the U.S. seems to be saying, well, you know, if we're nicer to them, right, if we give them rewards, but an invitation... That will make things better. And there's just no logic to that. It's, as Representative Tlaib said, the invitation to address a joint session of Congress is a privilege. Why, in the midst of this most extreme right-wing government, would we invite any of its representatives? Well, why do you think they did? There is this undying, as they say in the administration, as Tony Blinken is so fond of saying, unbreakable, unshakable, ironclad commitment. And that's what we look at. So the worse Israel behaves, the more the U.S. panders to them, rewards them for this bad behavior. But what we're really looking at that is just hard to comprehend is that after the U.S. administration kept saying, no, Israel is not meeting the standards for reciprocation to be allowed into the U.S. visa waiver program. Here we are, and it's been announced they're being let in. This is completely egregious. Israel says, oh, we'll behave this time. We promise we will. We've discriminated against Arab Americans and Americans with political positions against us and black Americans. And We've discriminated left and right, but we promise if you give it to us, we won't. And uh, he goes, oh, says, okay, that sounds great. If you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you in New Jersey. (laughs) The United States is supporting a colonialist regime with a colonialist agenda in the midst of the decolonization of the world. In the midst of a turn so far to the right that it's, shocking even to the Israeli people. And that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a low bar. Right. Um, that it's so extreme that it's moving into, as you called it, uh, almost a dictatorship. And even the Israeli people who have gone along and gone along are upset about aspects of it. So where is this going to end up? Israel does something egregious, whether it's more settlements, an attack on Janine, another bombing of Gaza. And we, the U.S., say, oh, we're very upset. Please don't do that. We're, we're 
asking you not to do that. <laughs> Wrongly asking you. And his real says, oh, well, we're going to do it anyway. And then we say, oh, okay, well, that's fine. Would you like an invitation to, to address Congress? <laughs> and it's been going on this way for, <laughs> for you know, over well, and over. Where, where does this end up? Why would they expect it to be any different? It would end up exactly where it is with Israel in a move towards outright fascism, towards a state that nobody can deny is openly apartheid, it'll end up right where, it, where it's headed. Can the U.S. hold back the tie to history? What's so heartbreaking to me is if you look at polling among Palestinians, 70% support armed resistance. And if you look at Palestinian youth, what you see is absolute despair. You see young children who don't feel that life is worth it and are willing to give up their lives to die for nothing. The idea of David versus Goliath, that violence up against the Israeli, the U.S. supported, the U.S. military supported Israeli military, the idea that small acts of violence are going to bring down David and Goliath is absolutely a horrificness. But that's what you get from, from pure despair. The really upsetting situation there. And hopelessness, which results in that kind of violence, of terror attack, you don't solve it, you don't stop it from reoccurring by going in with military state violence. What you do is you create more of it. You have this horrific cycle, and that's what we're seeing. Representative Tlaib, her voice cracked with despair towards the end. I mean, I thought she was going to cry, and I've heard her speak like that, like she's talking to a brick wall with these people, uh, Democrats and Republicans both, the establishment in the United States. I'm glad that she brings the emotion. Obviously, Representative Tlaib knows firsthand the suffering of apartheid, in, in, of Israeli apartheid. And I know when I when I witnessed it for the first time, for a very brief period, it tore my, my heart apart. That's what she's speaking to, and she's speaking to the humanity, that we all may be able to see that humanity and change the course. Ariel Gold is executive director of the International Peace Group Fellowship of Reconciliation. Another move by Israel that's attracting criticism is this week's recognition of Morocco's annexation of Western Sahara. Morocco considers Western Sahara its own territory, but the Polisario Front, a pro-independence group, has been fighting for an independent state they call the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. That fight's been going on for nearly 50 years. In 2020, then-U.S. President Donald Trump recognized Morocco's claim to the territory in return for Rabat's resumption of diplomatic ties with Israel. A Sahrawi activist, Salka Barka, tells the news Israel and Trump's recognition of Morocco's annexation sparked a new chapter in Western Sahara's quest for independence. Western Sahara is, uh, rem- uh, remains uh, the last colony in Africa. It was a Spanish colony until 1975, of, uh, after the secret accord between Spain, Mauritania, and uh, Morocco, where they split the country to two thirds were Moroccan uh, share, and one third, the southern one, was uh, Mauritania. But the war broke down, uh, broke uh, down in Western Sahara uh, during the uh, 75. So the Sahrawi uh, people declared an independence movement, an armed struggle against the occupation of both Mauritania and 
Morocco. They've been fighting for quite some time. Mauritania in the end of uh, 1979 withdrew from the region, but Morocco, with the help of the United States, financially and militarily supported them to take over the rest of the other third and have been occupied since. There were involvement in the United Nations and the resolutions for self-determination for the people, but it never took place. The first wars continued for about 16 years. The uh, leadership, Polisario Front, which is uh, the people of Sagi Alhamra and Rio de Oro, it's a Spanish acronym, for the uh, Sahrawi people. They did uh, accept uh, the United Nations proposal for a referendum that uh, never took place. So it took about 30 years for the Polisario Front and for the Sahrawi people to wait for uh, United Nations implementation of a referendum for the Sahrawi people. But of course, Morocco was dragging their feet for 30 years. Finally, after Trump recognition of the same what Netanyahu is doing now, the Polisario Front had no choice but to resume the war and to fight the occupation militarily. The worst situation right now is the support of the United States, France and also Israel to the occupation of Western Sahara, support, supplying them with the deadliest drones and military and everything you can imagine and it's been a nightmare to be honest with you but the other thing is the u.s has two positions one on the state department's latest report disclosed that uh, there are many violations against human rights and called the polisario as a, a liberation movement which is very strange but in meantime a few weeks later they supplied morocco with a new badge of F-16 and other weapons. So it does not make any sense. If there is a human rights violation, you would give the same one, the abuser, the weapons and the tools to continue the abuse against the civilians. How many countries in the world today, if any, recognize Western Sahara as part of Morocco? There is no country in the world recognize Western Sahara as part of Morocco at all. It's only the Trump when he made that statement or proclamation and Israel now. There is not one country in the entire international community recognize the sovereignty of Morocco over Western Sahara. There are over 80 countries that recognize the Sahrawi of self-determination and the right to be free, which is mostly Latin America, African nations, and some Asian nations. None of it from Europe and none course, North America, but a lot of Latin America and other countries. What's happening in Western Morocco with the support of Israel is the same or close to the same that's happening in the West Bank? Absolutely. Because I'll tell you from my own experience as uh, a Sahrawi uh, was born in Layoun in the capital city of Western Sahara, I was not allowed uh, to be free. I was just visiting as an American citizen, uh, visiting Layoun, my birthplace. And I was harassed and followed everywhere. I can't even do anything to the home of my parents who perished in the refugee camps of southwest Algeria waiting to return. And they died waiting. So I can't even claim my home of my parents because of the Moroccan control of Moroccan forbidden Sahrawis from doing anything. Anything like that? I hope uh, the American people review the government of the United States international relations and to review that they cannot be getting involved with Ukraine full of force of support and yet 
with Palestine and Western Sahara, that don't exist or not important enough. And I hope people uh, start asking the Biden administration and one of the things to ask him to completely reverse the uh, Trump proclamation that he did before and now Netanyahu is following him because it's given the green light to the Moroccans to do whatever they want. They can torture, they can even, they are using repression against Sahrawis everywhere, even here in the United States and in Europe. American people must wake up and the foundation that they have been preaching for the past 200 years. Salka Barka is a Sahrawi activist with the feminist civil rights group Karama Sahara. 28 countries recognize Morocco's control, but 80 countries recognize Western Sahara as independent. The founder of Nonviolence International is Mubarak Awad. He's a Palestinian who was deported from Israel for his nonviolent activism on behalf of Palestinians. Awad has visited Western Sahara and draws a connection between the Sahrawi and Palestinians. He says are also victims of Israeli apartheid. As a Palestinian, we feel the same thing happened to us. I mean, it's a different situation, but uh, people want to take a land and they were abused in Germany. And they say we could take that land and they took it. We have to stand for the international law. We have to stand for justice. We have to stand for communities who are not progressives like ours or who have weapons, more weapons than us and they have the right to do whatever they want. For United States to enter into this real sadness, they are supporting Ukraine in everything with weapons, with the satellites, with everything because Russia is invading and here they are telling Morocco we are with you to invade. This hypocrisy is being seen all over the world. And why he's doing it, I have no idea. I have no clue what the United States is getting out of that. Mubarak Awad is the founder of Nonviolence International. Across the globe, the growing conflict between the United States and China is roiling the nearly 1.4 million people of Okinawa, an island that was controlled by the United States between 1945 and 1972 and is now part of Japan. Okinawa, a once independent island, part of the Ryukyu Island chain, was the site of the bloodiest battle in the Pacific in 1945. More than 100,000 Japanese soldiers, 12,000 Americans, and 150,000 Okinawa civilians were killed. Despite handing over formal control of Okinawa to Japan, the United States reserves 15% of the island for military bases, with nearly 30,000 U.S. troops stationed on the island. An anti-base activist from Okinawa was in New York City on July 8th for the 24-hour peace wave, an online global broadcast advocating world peace. She says Okinawa citizens have a front-row seat to the frightening growth and tensions between the United States and China. Like long history, 78 years, the Okinawa was occupied militarily by the U- U.S. government, and uh, so they didn't have any. Um, autonomy and they were not belong to Japan that time and then after that after many years that uh, Okinawa was returned to Japan Jap- Japanese government but uh, the basis of the US never left it stayed and then Futema air base is the big air base right in the middle of a very condensed residential area that stayed and Okinawan people's wish was remove that base out but then U.S. and the Japanese government 
what they came up with was they would make the, a gigantic new base in a little bit remote area in the same island. But it takes like maybe a couple of decades to build. Then they're going to um, close the Futenma. There are lots of like a twist in those process. They told them lies and uh, changed the policy right away. So it's a lot to say, but we can describe everything. But right now, they've been against the new base because we're going to take all the Futenma base out. Everybody knows. It's know an expansion, really, not yeah, really that, a yes, replacement, yes, yeah, like and, said. Yeah, and then also it's bigger and more, more facilities more weapons. China, you know, the United States, yeah, the Pacific filter. Yeah, that, that's what they are saying. The situation has been changed since last year because the Japanese government changed their military policy so that the self-defense army in Japan, it's not really self-defense, but it's an army, but they don't, they don't want to call it just a regular army. The U.S. government wants to allow self-defense army to attack another country, even their own land is not under the attack. Because of that, they're talking about the Taiwan issue, Chinese issue, and then they want to put a lot more bases in Japan, in Okinawa specifically. Now the situation becomes even more intense, and the many Okinawan people actually scared. They don't get scared so easily because they've been together with the army for like 78 years, but now they are really scared. And one of the remote islands, Okinawa prefecture has like lots of islands, and one of the remote islands asked to get some money if they want to escape out of their own land. It's the crazy because they think that we're going to put the more, more bases. Maybe that will increase your risk to be attacked if something happens with China or Taiwan, we want you to escape so that they can use their land as, as the base. So it's the situation is really crazy and then it's not only about Japanese government, it's about the US government as well. The US wants to use Japanese armies as their free armies. Right now in the region of the world, Okinawa, Japan, China, that area, there's a lot more military going on than yeah. people realize. Yes, yes, yes. It's coming. They are making. It's, it's like at least like 10 more facilities, bases, new bases will be, is, is on the process of uh, being built. Not only U.S. people, but the Japanese mainland people don't know about it because the, uh, the news doesn't cover that. Folks in Okinawa are on the front line. Yes. It's a military front line. Yes. The, all those areas will be used by the military and so because they, they're very close to China and the uh, Korean Peninsula it's crazy it's really crazy it's, I don't think it's based on the fact that Chinese are trying to you know push towards us it's, it's a little bit more like US and maybe Japan also wants to create the situation Right, you don't feel that China, and I don't get the impression that China is being the aggressor in all of this. No, actually, we are the aggressor. If you see that map of the armies based in a station in Japan or the, along the uh, China continent, the U.S. has a lot of, lot of bases in outside. We don't know, compared to other countries. If your house was surrounded by the military bases, then you feel like offense. So that's what it is. 
of course, it's not only like from one end. Just it's both things. So China has has some plans, but I don't think you know they're, they're very good people, very good uh, country. I, I don't know, but uh, we have to stop. We already have a lot of lot of bases. In a 2019 referendum, more than 70% of voters in Okinawa rejected a plan to build yet another United States military base on the island. And in more news, the film Oppenheimer opened to positive reviews across the United States on Thursday. The unusual summer blockbuster, complete in 70mm IMAX format, traces the life of Robert Oppenheimer, who was the civilian head of the Manhattan Project, the super-secret nationwide effort to build the first atomic bomb. Imagine a future, and our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it until they understand it. The first test bomb, the gadget, was detonated in the early morning of July 16, 1945, in New Mexico. Oppenheimer, a social democrat and conservative U.S. Army General Leslie Groves, formed an unlikely alliance, achieving what many thought would be the impossible, unleash the massive energy contained within the heart of matter. The movie, directed by Christopher Nolan, is based on the book American Prometheus, the triumph and tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by historian Kai Bird. A regular contributor to this news, Kai Bird discussed Oppenheimer's legacy. Uh, well, Robert Oppenheimer and the other physicists were, you know, early premature anti-fascists. And they had, many of them, Oppenheimer included, had studied in Germany, and they felt, they knew that the German scientists that they had studied with in Germany were as well qualified as they were to unlocking the secrets of the atom, and they feared that the German scientists were going to give Hitler the, the atomic bomb, and that would be, you know, it would result in America's defeat in the war. So they were politically motivated. They thought it was, they thought they were behind in the race to build the bomb. So and the so American that was the motivation. Did the American establishment, the military establishment, the political establishment use them? Yes, they were used as such. Um, they, The scientists themselves were not privy to the actual decision-making on how to use the bomb. But obviously they were reading the newspapers. They knew by early 1945 that the war in Europe was virtually over. And there was actually a discussion at Los Alamos about, well, why are we working so hard to build this this terrible weapon if the Nazis are now defeated? And Oppenheimer got up and, and he answered that question by quoting Niels Bohr, the great Danish quantum physicist, who had visited Los Alamos on the last day of 1943, and when he stepped off the airplane, he, he had one question for Oppie, Oppie as he was known. Uh, he said, Doctor, you know, Oppie, is it big enough? 
meaning is the bomb going to be big enough, terrible enough that it will end all war? And Oppenheimer's argument to his fellow physicists in the spring of 45 was that we have to complete what we're doing and show the world the terrible power of this thing. Otherwise, the next war will be fought with atomic weapons and it will be devastating. Um, so Oppenheimer understood that you couldn't uninvent the science, that, you know, it was there, it was going to be the secrets of making an atomic bomb were not that complicated. And uh, so this is the rationalization he gave to the scientists, and he persuaded them. They worked very hard through the summer and tested the bomb at Trinity in July, and three weeks later, it was used on Japan. But Oppenheimer always regretted this. Uh, in the end, when he came back to Washington in September of 45, he was briefed on what had happened and the decision to actually use the weapon. And uh, a few weeks later, he was giving speeches saying, you know, that this is a weapon for aggressors, and it was used in the first instance on an enemy that was virtually already defeated. Isn't that sad? Yeah. And what does that have to say about our humanity and the future, our future? It's very frustrating to me as an historian because, uh, you know, I've been working off and on writing about the atomic bomb for the last 30 years. And uh, you're right, the conventional wisdom, most Americans today believe that the bomb was used to end the war and save, you know, they usually use the figure a million American lives or a, a million American casualties. And it's simply not true. They're, the archives, the historical record is now very clear. And, you know, there are... are that's clear from the archives that, for instance, General Eisenhower, the supreme commander of Allied forces in Europe, when briefed at Potsdam by the Secretary of War that they were about to use this weapon on Japan, he expressed the opinion that it was unnecessary and an awful thing to do. This is, he wrote this in his memoirs. Now, that's just the beginning. You know, seven out of the eight five-star generals or admirals in the American military at the time expressed the same opinion within months and a few years after the bomb was used. They knew it was unnecessary. The problem is that most Americans don't understand that it wasn't a, a binary decision. Either we invade the Japanese home islands with great casualties or we use the atomic bomb. In fact, U.S. intelligence knew from the magic in intercepts, the cables that we were intercepting of Japanese diplomatic traffic, that the emperor was already ready to surrender. And that the issue, the only block to uh, a, an immediate surrender was an assurance that the emperor, who was a godlike figure in the eyes of most Japanese, would not be put on trial as a war criminal. So they wanted a slight change, a, a correction, and an amendation of the terms of unconditional surrender. And in fact, that's what we gave the Japanese afterwards. We did not put the emperor on trial as a war criminal, and we kept him because we realized we needed him as a sort of constitutional monarchy in order to effect a 
smooth transition to an occupation of Japan. So it's a great tragedy in, in, in the history. And yet, here we are 75 years after the bomb, and most Americans simply do not understand the history. They're not even really weapons. That's a misnomer. They're a suicide pill that, you know, that the United States and other countries use to prevent them from being invaded uh, the way uh, World War II ended. And uh, they really can never actually be used. They really aren't military weapons. Um, you know, as Oppenheimer said in October of 45, just three months after Hiroshima, you know, these are weapons of, for aggressors, and they were used in the first instance on an enemy that was already defeated. Uh, my last question is, uh, do you have much hope? Did Oppenheimer have hope? Oppenheimer did have hope. He, after the end of the war, and he became a national icon as the father of the atomic bomb, he spent many years trying to advocate for a program to take control of these weapons, to make them illegal, to create an international atomic energy authority that would have sovereign ownership over all things atomic, that would be able to inspect any factory, any laboratory, anywhere in the world to prevent the illegal manufacture of enriched uranium, for instance, other than for uh, energy purposes. And so, you know, he, he envisioned a world in which their rational men would believe in science and trust in scientists to keep us safe and to keep controls over this terrible technology. He also thought that atomic energy was a viable thing that could be a good thing for humanity. But again, you'd have to have real serious controls give this International Atomic Energy Agency control sov over sovereign nations to be able to go anywhere and inspect. And so that was his hope. And in fact, we do have an international agency that does something similar to this. It just doesn't have the powers that he thought were necessary. So there is hope. But alas, in an age where we seem to have so little trust in science and then scientists and then scientific expertise, I'm rather pessimistic, too, <laughs> that we're just not there yet. Too late to end the war in Germany, the first two bombs, Little Boy and Fat Man, destroyed the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing more than 200,000 people. Dr. Akiko Mikamo is a psychologist and author of the book 815, A True Story of Survival and Forgiveness from Hiroshima. The book was made into a film in 2020. It's about the experiences of Dr. Mikamo's father, who was three quarters of a mile from ground zero in Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, at 8.15 a.m. Which mm -hmm. is the first person account of my father's experience of surviving the Hiroshima bombing at three quarters of a mile on top of the house roof, 100% exposure to the nuclear explosion in 1945. And he lived miraculously. He passed away, but he survived and lived 76 uh, years after that. And S my How many years? I say that again. He survived how long? 76. He 76 years. Wow. Yeah, 70, I'm sorry, 75, because he passed away in 2020. 
Oh. And it's pure miracle if you look at the pictures of that proximity. I really don't know anybody else who survived who is outside, nothing to shield him, just complete exposure. And my mother was actually at 0.4 miles from the epicenter. So for both of them to survive was just, you know, unfathomable. I grew up hearing my father's story, and I wrote the book to, de- to describe the detail experiences and what he saw, what happened to him, and what happened to his father, what he witnessed, and what he went through, the immediate third-degree burns and severe injuries and radiation, no medical care, the wounds getting rotten in hot summer humid sun, somehow surviving that injuries and burns, then getting a radiation illness, experiencing many near-death moments, and survived. The most distinct thing about my father's story is he never hated Americans as the aggressor. He always told me not to blame, that Americans are not to blame, don't point the finger. It's the war to blame, it's more of a weakness of humanity. Humans tend to be not willing to look at things from other people's perspectives or understand or try to figure out the ways to collaborate or work things out. That's what causes the war, and the war led to this nuclear bombing. It's not one person, or it's not the American people. They're not the ones who decided, like individually, to cause this disaster. My mission is to let the Hibakusha's experiences, not the ones who were in outskirts of the city, but the ones who were inside and had direct exposures and still survived and what the experiences were. The nuclear weapons are not to be used ever again in my feelings as well and most of the Hibakusha's feelings. It's it's like an absolute evil. Oppenheimer was a man who thought the Germans were going to get it. The movies are movies. I don't know if it quotes his actual words in every line. I do have a lot of respect for Kybert. His biography, I haven't read it, but I'm pretty sure that's based on the great research and documentation. That's what I assume. The movies are, I'm pretty sure, featured and narrated and dramatized. One thing I can tell you is my father had a great respect for Dr. Oppenheimer, which sounds like an oxymoron, but how my father saw was Dr. Oppenheimer was given this role, and he was an amazing scientist, and it wasn't his idea. It was brought to him. What my father said was, when he was asked to lead the hydrogen bomb project, he refused it. And he did say, now the blood is on my hand, right after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombing. 
he was stripped of all the clearance, high security clearance. My father was actually hated and bashed by other survivors for not hating Americans. They saw him like, if you don't hate enemies, you are the enemy. A lot of survivors told him that. But my father had a very different view of the world. You can't just say black and white and enemies and allies. Their humanity, there are a lot of very complicated, multifaceted things you need to understand. I'm not saying what Oppenheimer did is right. He was given the responsibility to create this absolute evil. And I'm a psychologist. I look at people from very psychological point of view, and I would love to learn more about his personality, his background, his makeup of the personality. I look forward to watching the movie and see how it is described. And But I see Oppenheimer, my understanding is he had a lot of agony and a lot of pride and a lot of glory, like the original book says, but it's not a simple thing, like he was good or bad. Dr. Kiko Makamo is a psychologist and author of the book, 815, A True Story of Survival and Forgiveness from Hiroshima. The film is going to be shown the first week of August on PBS. Check your local listings for the time and date. Professor Robert Rosner is an astrophysicist at the University of Chicago and a former member of the board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. He says Oppenheimer lost his security clearance in a bruising legal battle over his opposition to developing the more powerful hydrogen bomb in the 1950s. Rosner says Oppenheimer was no communist, but he was naive. Not everybody thought that automatically somebody who is a socialist or communist is necessarily also a traitor. There certainly were communists who were closely involved with uh, the Soviets, and in fact, a number of them were, in fact, ended up passing secrets. Rosenberg, one of the most well-known examples. But not everybody was. Oppenheimer, he was a loyal American. And it's very interesting that Groves knew all about the picadillos that Oppenheimer was capable of. He had another woman. There was another woman who was, in fact, there was no question she was in the party. And Groves knew about that. He trusted him. He was a patriotic socialist, a socialist who is... He uh, was a poster, yes, 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 right. yes, exactly. If you have communist ideals and are a Democrat, I think what it means is you're a democratic socialist. And that's what he was, he, basically, he, he, you think. That's what he was, yeah, yeah. But it worked against him in the 50s. You know, Edward Teller has a bad reputation with many physicists because of what he did to uh, Oppenheimer. Yeah. What do you think of Teller? Yeah. He's bete noir. Super, super smart. He was one of the original joiners of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Take that away. Yes, he was. If you go to the Bulletin website and you look at the folks who were on the board of sponsors, the board of sponsors was started by Einstein. His name is among them. A complicated person, too. What he was angry about was that uh, Oppenheimer was blocking what he thought, Teller thought, was an extremely important next step, which is to build a thermonuclear weapon. Oppenheimer was really badly treated in the end. His friends said he could have walked away from it because he had enough secrets that he could have bargained, use it as a bargaining chip to just tell him to go jump in the lake. But he wanted to go in there anyway and testify. Right. Some people would say that he was naive. Yeah, that's what he did. 
that hearing was just a perfect example of a kangaroo court. They had decided what they were going to end up doing, and they did. Yeah. One thing that you might ask yourself, this effort to rehabilitate Oppenheimer has been going on for many years. There were attempts to rehabilitate him during the Obama administration. There were two heads of DOE, two secretaries of energy, who were Democrats. Both of them refused to do the rehabilitation. Both of them. And now you can ask yourself, why is that? And, and Grandson did. And I think the reason was that the ask was very different. The ask at that time was, could the action be repealed? And I think the lawyers, the DOE lawyers said, we, we can't do that. And the fundamental reason is that, that Oppenheimer did, in fact, lie to the FBI. And he admitted, in fact, during the trial, he admitted that he had lied to the FBI and that he regretted it. And the problem with lying to the FBI is that you have clearance. It doesn't matter what you're lying about. You're going to lose your clearance. And so if you, if you exonerated him, simply exonerated him, that would have caused actually an interesting problem. Because it would have been doing something for him that you couldn't do for anybody else. It's doing him a favor. So the grounds on which he was rehabilitated this time around is because the trial itself was flawed. There is no judgment made other than that the trial was flawed. Null and void. It's a very clever, different task. What do you think somebody like Oppenheimer should be placed, considering, you know, they did kill hundreds of thousands of poor Japanese people? Yeah. I think he did what was needed to be done. Because the fear about the Germans getting it first was just palpable. They were really scared of that. Most of the, the people in Chicago actually protested about the use of the bombs in warfare. They said just do a demonstration. The classic example of scientists do what they want to do, need to do, and they very rarely, if ever, control the consequences. Professor Robert Rosner is an astrophysicist at the University of Chicago, formerly with the Argonne National Laboratory, where the first sustained nuclear fission reaction was demonstrated, proving the feasibility of the bomb. And the executive director of the Arms Control Association is Daryl G. Kimball. He attended a screening of Oppenheimer on Thursday. Kimball says the movie is accurate, but leaves out a few important points about the long-term effects of the New Mexico test on the indigenous people living downwind of the explosion. This is a very powerful, compelling, entertaining, and worrisome uh, film about the origin story of the bomb, the people who built it, and how it relates to today's growing nuclear dangers in many, many years. Um, so I think you know this is an important film uh, for those of us who are interested in, in, in helping to communicate the dangers that we're still in, the need for the public and our leaders to mobilize to halt and reverse the uh, accelerating arms race. Um, so this is, a, this is an important cultural and, and potentially an important political moment. Without giving up too much, is it appropriate to enjoy an atomic bomb blast as if it was a ride at an amusement park? 
No. This film is not a film that glorifies nuclear weapons or the Manhattan Project or even Robert Oppenheimer. It's a film that's based largely on Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin's 2005 biography, American Prometheus. It presents in an unambiguous way you know, the key data points and facts that are part of the complex story around the making of the gadget, the debate among the scientists about the use of the bomb on Japanese cities after Germany was defeated, the controversies about you know, secrecy surrounding nuclear weapons and whether to build the hydrogen bomb and, to, and how and whether to build up the U.S. nuclear arsenal uh, to counter the Soviet. And then, of course, Oppenheimer's role in it all. And it, it, it forces the viewer to recognize the, the choices that were made then have led us in a more dangerous direction, and we're living with the consequences today. It's not enjoyable in the sense of nuclear pornography. Uh, this is something that's going to disturb a lot of people, I think stun people, and, and certainly make them go, go home thinking about what can I do about this. Do you have any reservations about what you saw? The film, like the book, American Prometheus, bypasses some of the key storylines surrounding the building of the first atomic bomb, the for instance, the ongoing health impacts of the people in New Mexico who are downwind. Even today, the people in that area are not covered by the program that was established in 1990 to help monitor the health of people downwind from all the other U.S. nuclear test explosions uh, that were mainly conducted in Nevada. So they're still fighting for some form of justice. And the film also doesn't really remind the viewers about the vast, costly, and dangerous nuclear weapons complex that the Manhattan Project spawned in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and into the 70s and 80s that created even greater harm. The film doesn't cover all of these different aspects of the nuclear weapons story, but you know, no one film can do that. Unlike any other film we've seen on nuclear weapons matters in decades, this film is going to make people think it's going to force, it's going to remind people of the dangers that we're, we're in today, and it's a very important conversation piece. Daryl G. Kimball is executive director of the Arms Control Association. Also in New York City for the 24-hour peace wave on July 8th and online global broadcast advocating world peace was actress Finney Burroughs. She read this poem about Haitian's revolutionary Toussaint Louverture. Oh, Toussaint, where and when wilt thou find patience? Yet die not. Do thou wear rather in thy bonds a cheerful brow, though fallen thyself never to rise again. Live and take comfort. Thou hast left behind powers that will work for thee air, earth, and skies. There's not a breathing of the common wind that will forget thee. Thou hast great allies. Thy friends are exaltations, agonies, and love, and man's 
unconquerable mind. We dedicate those words now to all Haitians and to all people who are struggling for a better world, a world of peace where children can have an education and have their parents with them. We despise what the United States is doing with its more than 400 military bases over the whole world. We are the new wave and we protest and we will continue to protest. And now I end with these words. Toussaint, the most unhappy man of men, whether the whisting rustic tend his plow within thy hearing, or thy head be now pillowed in some deep dungeon's earless den. O miserable chieftain, wilt thou find patience, yet die not? Do thou rather wear rather in thy bonds a cheerful brow, though fallen thyself never to rise again, live and take comfort. Thou hast left behind powers that will work for thee, air, earth, and skies. There's not a breathing of the common wind that will forget thee. Thou hast great allies. Thy friends are exaltations, agonies, and love, and most of all, the unconquerable mind and spirit that will live forever. To all Haitians, to all people, we are the new way. We are. Barney Burroughs, Minnie Elise, Phyllis, all of the Granny Peace Grade. Thank you to the Metro New York. And that's the news for the week of July 21st, 2023. The news was produced and anchored by this reporter from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.